This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of the falconer's dream from Japanese folklore. It's a tale of identity and change, but also of terrifying birds and big sticks, and actually bells and whistles, so it's the whole gamut. The creature this week is why you shouldn't pet that snow pile with the neon pink eyes. This is Myths and Legends, episode 301, After Sundown. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are tales that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode takes us into the world of Japanese folklore, and there's not really any setup necessary. So, we'll jump right in. To the west of the capital, in the distance, where houses shrink and formalities decline, there's a patch of land where the ground lays flat and grasses sway in wild plumes. It's called the Saga Moor, and it's the only home I have ever known. Here, I was an orphan. I became a husband, a father three times over, and yet always, I am the falconer. It is who I am. It is how I have survived. I know each of my hawks and have trained them since they were chicks. They are impartial to the prize, as harsh as the wind delivering chills from the north. It takes many kills to keep them fed. But through them, and with them, and for them, I remain here on Saga Moor. Here, though my sons are now men, though they tower above their mother, their hair tied high in a knot, they have caught up to me, only I too have moved. And with age comes lighter sleep, so light, I can feel my dreams pressing down on me, like a heap of stone from the mountains. I lay down and I am awake, and then I am not. In the dreams that visit me often, there's a hole in the center of Sagamore. In my dreams, it's a place my whole family belongs. Spring arrives and draws me into the early light. We will forage this day, as we always do, gathering sun and sustenance, each of us blazing our own trail to maximize yield. I go left, further and further from home, we cast a wide net like seeds, scattered on the currents of the air. We have waited all winter for this moment, and freedom is here. But here, the dream strays from the others. It's different. From the north, at the fringes of the woods past Uzumasa, comes the sound of voices. And I follow. Bells ring, faintly at first then louder, growing as I begin to understand the sight unfolding. It's a band of horses, a strong and swift herd. Atop them, men in woven hats, furs with spots and streaks, long swords wrapped in the skin of a boar. They wear leather gloves, each with a raptor atop their fist. They are all master falconers, with hawks I have never seen. Their birds cry out, their bodies surging to fly, they cannot, not until their masters command them to go. Until then, 
they must wait and fight their instincts boiling to the brim. Bells tied around their ankles jangle, voicing their anguish from within. A second row of figures emerges on foot, between the horses. In their hands, wooden poles, as long as my sons are tall. They create a sea of blue cloaks, capped by sleeves of red leather and boots wrapped in fur. As distance grows between them, the sticks come crashing to the ground, whipping thickets into submission. The walkers whistle, and a third wave appears. Faster than the second, fiercer than the first, they're a pack of dogs prowling with lowered jowls and silent paws, roving rows of teeth waiting to sink into the prize, hungry to please their keepers. Not even the bells they wear can distract them from their mission. The clatter grows, weaving through the grasses on the moor. They are here to hunt, I realize, on my land. Tightness constricts my breath. My head is suddenly racing. The urge to run is all at once unbearable, hot like a glowing coal inside my chest. The hole in the center of the saga more. I want to be there more than anything. There is nothing I can do. Yet still, I have to warn my wife, my children. We must run. But since we cannot... We must hide. It is the only way. I start to go, but the wave of dogs is closing in. The walkers close behind, and the riders all seen, all knowing from on high. My refuge becomes the nearest thicket, and I catch my son, Taro, thinking the same. Taro, my firstborn. He, a protector and pillar of strength, diving into hiding a ways away, but just like me. Everywhere I look, there are hunters and dogs. They are many, yet I will hold out hope for the impossible. All is not lost, I say. This is not the end. I have hope, but that is only because I did not see the walker until now. The walker, led by a beating stick, passing over the flattened pompous grasses, overtaken by the dogs searching for the scent, I connect the dots of their trajectory, and to my horror, they are headed straight for my taro. Wait, my son, wait and be still, I say in my heart over and over again. It is my mantra, even after it applies. As I said, taro is the protector, was the protector. He would not wait for the stick to find him. I both feared and knew. The moment he was off, flying high into the air, the walker sounded the alarm. His falconer released the hawk in tandem, its pursuit swift and accurate. When Taro began to falter, exhaustion taking hold, the hawk was there with a talon around his head, another around his chest. The hawk brought him down. The walker gripped his neck, and the falconer watched, as though the day had only just begun. It was the start, the first of many, and when my son's body fell limp, the falconer wanted more. The dogs, who have yet to do their work, are not the first to move out. They push the border of their spread, noses to the ground while I pray they find nothing. I have not seen or heard the others. Perhaps they made it to the hole 
and I'm the only one left in the open. I will believe it until I know otherwise. The dogs lunge, then slow, their timing chaotic until one of them takes the lead. No more false starts. He has found something. But what? My body senses before sight confirms. The cinch around my chest tightens ever more, and I heave in gasps. I am helpless as the pack converges, as one turns and runs victorious. In its clutches, I see my second son, Jiro. His wings beat the air, they ram against the reddened muzzle, but feathers are no match for teeth. Jiro, my Jiro, the one who brought us comfort through story and song, he, the creative one, the pride of his mother, he gathers strength and fights anew, but his efforts grow weaker and weaker, and he soon falls by Taro's side, held in the falconer's grasp. I am broken. I am lost. But at that moment, one of the walkers swings a stick and instinct returns. This one's found something as well. It's Saburo my third and youngest son. He jumps in time, escaping the blow. Then he's in the air, gaining momentum, as none of the dogs are close enough to reach him in time. He, wise beyond his years, full of promise and dreams. He has done what the others could not. He's escaping. The sound comes like a thunderbolt, a jolt to all. Even the walker who swung the stick and watched Saburo fall. No fight. No flutter, just his shell in the grass, waiting for the dogs to take their credit. Who can know the anguish of a father in this moment, but the one who has lost everything? It is a pain none in this world should ever face. I wail, though there's no sound left to make. I watch, buckling beneath the weight of guilt and anger, as my bride makes it to the edge of the hills to the north. She stumbles and strains, the wave of dogs lapping closer. Do they see her duck beneath the pine and huddle low beneath the branches? They howl and veer to the side and beyond. And once again, I, I hope, I hope and I watch. And in my waiting, I miss the riders and the walkers nearing my own thicket. Sticks and hooves trample the brush but I am only here in body. The best of me is on the side of the mountain, beneath the pine, beside my wife, hoping that the pack of dogs has lost the scent for good. A wave of calm settles like a blanket of snow, and I am a fool to not recognize what it is. I know the hunt, and yet I miss the signs. And so, the strike rains down on both of us. Dogs circling back, heading for the pine. The walkers landing sticks at the edge of my thicket, finding me crouched above the roots. A burst of feathers dragged from beneath the needles of the mountain. My wife's agony louder than the celebration of the hounds. I am completely gone without her. Without Taro and Jiro and Saburo. Then, 
A jangle of bells cuts the air, and the urge to flee overcomes me once more. It is the hawk coming last from me at the falconer's command. The dogs returning and circling the next prize. I am surrounded. I panic. And then I remember I am asleep. And then I am not. I am in my bed in the saga more, not in a hole, but in my house. Through the open window, a set of chimes jingles in the morning breeze, and I find my wife, my sons, we are all there, unlike in my dream. But not all of me returned, I say, looking up for the first time. Rows of monks stare back at me like a wall. I arrived over a week ago, and only now am I able to share my story. But there is no reaction. Not yet. Moments after my dream, I ran to my coops and corrals. I freed my hawks and released my dogs. I put the falconer in me to rest. I gathered my hunting gear and set it ablaze in the middle of the moor until it turned to ash along with who I used to be and I told my family everything. I pause and breathe. I have come with the blessing of my family to seek a life of peace. For a moment, no one said anything. No one moved until one of the monks stood and approached. In his hands, he held a blade. The falconer lowered his eyes, sank to his knees, and presented his head. He would pay for the deaths in his wake. He was ready. Every day, morning and night, the man knelt on a mat in the temple in the mountains, just like the other monks had taught him. He lowered his shaved head and uttered the same prayers each time. Atonement for his past. A new beginning. That his family would be okay. It took many years for sleep to return to the comfort it once was, but after three years, the nightmare ceased. At seven years, light sleep deepened and lengthened. Days became faster and shorter. Then, one night, after ten years in the mountains, he lay down in bed, his breath steady and slow. He was awake and then he was not. They were all there. His wife and partner, the joy of his life, and Taro, the protector, Jiro, the creative, Saburo, the wise, his family, together in the house in Sagamore. Only this time, there were no bells, no fear, no hawks, only them. And this time, he would not remember. And he would never say goodbye. It's a shorter episode this week. It's our last episode of 2022. We wanted to end the year and start the new one with a story of change, family, 
and empathy. Next week, we're back to full episodes with the story I mentioned last week, the story from Jewish folklore with the epic witch dance party that saved the world. The creature this time is the snow snake, a fearsome critter from the folklore of North America. If you live in North America and were hit by the massive drop in temperatures last week, you might not know it, but there's an extra danger when you're out there doing a snowball fight, you know, other than just getting a snowball down the back of your neck. Snakes. Poisonous snakes. Snow snakes are white, which shouldn't be surprising because that's the color of snow, and they can move almost invisibly in the winter, save for their pink eyes. And if you're out there like listening to this shoveling your driveway or something and just spotted two pink eyes looking at you from the snow and thought, hey, I should pet whatever that is. First, why? And second, as a follow-up, seriously, why? I'm assuming their teeth are long enough to get through most gloves because they do bite and they do kill. Traditional reports of the snow snake say it's extremely venomous, but reports last year do away with that boring, normal way that many snakes have to kill people and instead say that the snow snake will freeze your blood. And yes, last year, 2021, Snow snakes are one of those cryptids that have benefited from the fun cesspool of misinformation that is social media. Follow us at Myths and Legends on Instagram because people were sharing reports of deaths resulting from snow snake bites. It got to the point that Reuters had to release a fact check article saying that the often misspelled reports of creatures whose bites could freeze your blood was not real. They referenced an article on Snopes from 2014, which shows a picture that is 100% a rubber snake toy. The story of the snow snake has been written since 1910, where the actual first writer of this creature described it as something completely different. It wasn't a poisonous monster lurking in snowdrifts, but snakes that didn't make it underground for their yearly brumation, instead freezing atop the snow. Like Flanders filing his taxes on January 1st, Lumberjacks looking to get a head start on work that was due in the spring would cut down trees and place them atop a whole line of snow snakes. The first thing the snakes would do when they thawed in the spring would be to go get a drink of water in the river, inadvertently carrying an eight-ton log, as you do, and drop it off for it to begin its long journey to the lumber mill. So yes, when it comes to snow snakes, don't believe those bogus social media posts with tons of misspellings who say they're real Trust this random podcaster who says they're not. I mean, I, I, admittedly, I do have the same amount of misspellings, but you, you can't see them because this is audio. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is a podcast by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next year. Music